0: Hi there and welcome to Fantasy Focus Baseball for Monday, June 1st, 2020 with Tristan H. Cockroft, singer of songs and slayer of myriad fantasy leagues. Kyle Soppy researchers and produces our show, and I am Eric. They need a decent host and, well, they probably still do. This is a baseball show and as a result, baseball is what we will discuss today, each and every episode. And today we are pleased to welcome our friend Brad Doolittle, the excellent ESPN MLB staff writer to the Fantasy Focus Baseball. Brad, how are you today?
1: I'm doing good, guys. I'm happy to be with you. Happy to talk baseball.
0: Yes, we're going to talk some baseball. And there was some weekend news. We're going to get to an article you wrote last week about projections in a minute. But first, we want to start with the the weekend news of the day that Jeff Passan and others have reported. Um, Based on the news, the players and the owners are trying to get on the same page to return to play. Pretty much obvious that they're not doing that. But... Why, in your opinion, and you dealt with this in your article this morning, but why, in your opinion, do the other major sports have such an easy time, it seems, getting on the same page and baseball just cannot communicate properly?
1: Well, I mean, there's a a lot of layers to it, but I think the overriding thing is just the calendar. You know, baseball was shut down before they were able to get some regular season games in the books and get some revenue rolling and so they've got to figure out what to do with the entirety of their schedule. The other sports had gotten at least three quarters of the way through, so the revenue part of it can be pushed aside, and they only have to worry about health and safety issues, which is the number one item on the list for all the sports, and how to format a return. Whereas baseball, it's uh, uh, you know, it's, it's 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 figuring out everything on the fly, all under the umbrella of a. CBA that expires after next season and a history of uh, relations between management and players that isn't all that great.
2: And we're hopeful that they get this year in. I know that the news involved, a, I believe it was a 112-game proposal by the players, and the owners was originally 82, uh, with the players extending into October, which seems a little bit odd to me. So I know, Brad, you wrote a, a bit about the 82-game schedule and projecting uh, <laughs> players' numbers, whether it be a fluky kind of year. Do you think it's more realistic that's the number we're looking at, or do you think that we are going to be going in the direction of a larger season? if it gets to that point?
1: You know, I think uh, the negotiations over the number of games to be played is almost a proxy for the overall negotiations. And so I think the number is going to end up between 82. And it was 114 is what Jeff reported was the player's counterproposal this weekend. You know, when I went through and I set up a schedule, like a legitimate schedule based on uh, the number of interdivision games and matching up against the geographic counterpart for the other league and set it up with an opening day of July 4th. And I was able to set up a very realistic docket that ended in September 30th. And the density of games per day wasn't that high. So there was a lot of wiggle room there in what the owner's initial number was. And likewise, there's uh, a lot of, uh, uh, challenge to getting in one hundred and fourteen games, especially when you're talking about that would be an october thirty first end date, which pushes the what would be an expanded postseason into November so I think the owners are you know they represented one end of the scale and the players the other, and the answer is gonna fall somewhere between that so we'll see what happens um I'm hoping they can get the the number of games over one hundred just from the simple uh, standpoint that every game that you're able to add to the regular season adds to the, the legitimacy of the, the, the playoff structure that comes after it.
0: Right. And, and while we're all thinking about the legitimacy of a season playoff structure to get the right teams into the playoffs, we're also stat-oriented gentlemen who love baseball history. And we don't want to see a guy hit 400 with an asterisk or, you know, a, a, an ERA that challenges Bob Gibson. I want realty realistic numbers as well. I'm wondering, where did you get your projections from? Um, Were they based more on last season? Were they based on three-year numbers, which we use a lot in fantasy? How did you get your projections and did you feel comfortable with uh, how accurate they could be?
1: Yeah, I actually maintain a projection system. It's not something I market or, you know, I'm not uh, necessarily seeking to project individual statistics for Uh, the the fantasy market or anything like that. I'm more interested in uh, modeling potential team outcomes, Um, you know, uh, setting the baseline of probability for each team and for the season and what their strengths and weaknesses appear to be. And so my projection system is really, it's pretty basic. It's not dissimilar uh, to like a Marcel type forecasting system that just weights recent performance more and, and uses that as a baseline, and then I've gradually integrated little tweaks here and there as I've done research for articles, you know, that have run over over time. And so, you know, I have like different uh, levels of year-to-year change based on maybe how fast the guy got through the minor leagues, or um, where he was drafted, or um, you know, certain degrees of breakout seem to be more real than than uh, others, so that they might not regress in a normal way. So. All of these little things have just gradually been folded into it. But, you know, I don't make any claim to uh, a higher degree of accuracy than Zips or um, Pocota or any of the the really complex systems out there. This is really a tool for me to, um, uh, you know, just kind of create uh, uh, a system that reveals narrative to me. You know, finding hidden stories during a season is, some, is what I seek. So that's the purpose of it. And I, I think it, the results on it are, are very good in terms of how it stacks up in team uh, projection as compared to other systems. So, yeah, I, I, uh, I'm a believer in it, but I'm not going to be uh, selling any uh, uh, projection products based on it
2: either. Right. It's interesting. interesting that you do bring up a couple of the other specific projection systems, because when I look at the numbers, the outcomes themselves, they do look somewhat conservative like those would be. And I, Eric and I talk about this a lot with projections. They're so integral to fantasy analysis. Uh, they're taking a conservative approach while the column you wrote describes the polar extremes that players could follow. So they're not really following this sort of conservative model like a projection system would. 323, the top batting average projected, 23 home runs, the top number of home runs projected, 22 stolen bases, the top number there, and granted steals are down. But I look at what happened in reality. We've had years where players over an 82-game season have hit 40 home runs. Now, those were in generally the steroid era, but players have hit 35-plus home runs, which is way off a projections model as this. So Kind of interesting that the projections are here. Would would you use, would you rely more on a projection model in a short year like this? Or do you think it's better to make some gut calls?
1: I think there's a lot of leeway for uh, intuition in a, in a short season. Um, you know, the projections, like, such as I present, they're just an uh, an average baseline of expectation. And that's why I, I thought what Nate Silver did when he originally designed Pakoda was so brilliant, because it really communicated the, the uh, array of probabilities um, for the season, for, you know, any player's performance. And and that array is, is very wide. So, you know, if we were able to play the coming season, um, you know, a thousand times, yeah, the, the average home run leader might be Mike Trout with somewhere around 23 to 25. But in any given run of the season, and we only run one of them, there are a lot of possible things that can happen, and and that um, variability only goes up when you're playing half a season, roughly, or whatever number we end up with. So you know, like I wrote in that 82 game piece, I think I ended up with over 30 different players in my run of simulations, and I use a a, a game to to actually put use the projected numbers and then generate season outcomes and. There was was over 30 players that had a 30-home run season at some point. So my guess is that if we play 82 games, somebody's going to end up hitting 30 home runs. It's just it's hard for me to say who that would actually be.
0: It's the seventh-inning stretch of our interview here with Brad Doolittle, the fine ESPN MLB writer here on the Fantasy Focus Baseball, which means it's time for a little bit of Tristan's trivia. And since we have somebody who probably knows baseball history better than you or I, Tristan, I'm guessing Brad's going to get the answer. Tristan, what's your question today?
2: You might well. As a matter of fact, you all have a very good shot at this. Uh, Sticking to the 82 game theme, my question for the day is four players have gone 2020 in the first 82 games, 82 team games of a given season. So four players, four different players have done 2020 over that 82 game span. Now, it's kind of two layered here. There's a player who did it twice. I'd like you to name him first. And then I would like to see if you could name the other three players who also did it in an individual year.
0: 2020. So that's 20 home runs, 20 stolen bases. For, for those you. new to our show, it's not strikeouts yeah. or errors or anything like that. 20 um,
2: homers, 20 steals. There's a player who did it twice in his first 82 games of a season.
0: Uh, that's interesting. We can get the answer from Brad at the end of his interview here. Um, uh, this is, uh, he, I'm,
1: I'm guessing on it. this one. Yeah. I'm guessing. <laughs> I'm guessing along with you on this one.
2: Yep. We'll, we'll get, we'll get uh, to the guesses at the end.
0: Let's get back to the projections here briefly. Um, so when it comes to hitting versus pitching projections, you know, in the fantasy world, we tend to rely more on the hitting ones because we feel that they're safer. Uh, the hitters get don't get hurt as much. Uh, do you find the same thing with your projections, that they're more accurate for hitting than for pitching? And in a shortened season, would that change?
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, the hitting uh, projection outcomes are a lot more reliable, and um, you know the way I, again because my approach is to do the best I can in modeling team behavior. Um, you know, I tend to uh, go with kind of a I guess I would call it a fan graphs approach, where I'm I'm relying on strikeouts and walks and probable homers allowed to uh, begin to create the team's run allowed profile and and then uh, just uh, use some very conservative defensive adjustments. Uh, so the, the hitting projections are a lot more dynamic. And, um, you know, especially when you're talking about a, a fantasy perspective and you're trying to get into uh, projecting wins and saves, I don't even project wins and saves. I just pull those right out of uh, the steamer projection system just so I have them there to look at. But um, I mean, I, I have tried to do that before. The method is, Fairly straightforward. You're just projecting how many runs per inning a pitcher might allow and then plug in the team uh, run mark and set up a Pythagorean percentage based on that. But yeah, as we know, uh, projecting wins is is really tough. So um, I, th- I, I think that's why uh, if you're just talking about reliability projections, I'm going to uh, focus on the hitting side of it.
2: Brad, you mentioned that you collected a a bunch of different results here. So I'm kind of curious about some of the individual names. If you recall any of the individual outcomes, those who had some of the weirder results, ones at either extreme of the spectrum, if you remember an individual player, or if not, uh, who might be some players that you would expect have very fluky results? The ones that for fantasy purposes, we can expect a lot of variability. Maybe they have a really great year or they're a complete disaster.
1: Well, the, the highest individual batting average in one of my 82-game runs was three eighty eight by uh, Jeff McNeil. And I don't think that is uh, really uh, – I mean, that's that's a high average, obviously. But, I, you know, if you're going to pick a guy to do it, I don't know that Jeff McNeil is the worst choice for that. One guy I'm going to point to, and you, we can almost look at it as almost like a, a type of player who could just come out of nowhere and put up huge numbers, was there was a, a season in which uh, Joe Adele – was on the Angels roster and played every day throughout the the sim. And he hit ended up hitting something like 370 um, with power and steals. Um, and it was even within the the different simulations I ran, that was an outlier. But then when I started thinking about it, if you have a, a, a really talented guy in what that major league pitchers have not seen before, and he comes out and just starts off on fire um, in a way, you know, it happens sometimes. I'll take Austin Riley with the Braves before the league figured out how to pitch to him. He had put up some huge numbers and it, this could be the kind of season where a young guy like that comes up, Nick Madrigal or Lewis Robert both with the White Sox, two other guys that jump out at me in that regard, they could come up and put up huge percentage numbers before the league figures out what to do with them. And then the season would be over. So, um, you know, that was one of the things that jumped out at me when I was running all of those uh, simulated seasons.
0: As someone who's done projections before and after the designated hitter, we're assuming the designated hitter is now a National League staple for this season and beyond. I'm assuming pitchers don't bat again. What changes overall do you think fantasy owners can glean from it? Um, Obviously, playing time is going to be important. here who gets the extra at-bats, but in terms of National League pitchers, when in doubt, we used to say take the NL pitcher over the AL because he doesn't have to face David Ortiz. Now that's not going to be a factor at all, so – what uh, adjustments did you have to make for the DH?
1: My personal feeling is the, the overall effect is going to be less than people think it's going to be. Because I think um, the way that it's, the DH position has evolved in the American league. It's that you always have a handful of, of star level DHs going at any one time guys that um, are in the lineup. Most days that put up big numbers and, for at least half, or sometimes more, of the American League, the DH is just uses a rest position. Now, obviously, the 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 loss of the two or three plate appearances National League pitchers might get per game, where they uh, have the pitcher spot to work with, is going to mean the overall run scoring in the NL will tick up a little bit. But in terms of uh, individual varying variance of performance, you know when we're talking about a a time when pitchers are are really only asked to go two times through the order anyway and National League managers are going to uh, keep their pitchers from hitting uh, as often as they can, I just think that the the scope of the change is not going to be as stark as the the sort of stylistic change that people that are fans of the National League game are are going to see when they uh, watch games unfold.
2: Brad, the other thing uh, about this potential season that strikes me for fantasy is uh, the prospect of more playoff teams and what that's going to do to teams' competitiveness late, their decisions about prospects late in the year. Do they call them up into a playoff, uh, playoff state? The other is the trade deadline itself. I always go back to this fluky outcome of the 2003 Royals, who at the All-Star break that year, <laughs> incredibly were seven games up in the American League Central race, seven games and nobody expected it. I'm sure we're going to see a team that's like this this year. Do you think it's more likely we see more trading? How do you think the trade impact is going to, have, uh, uh, going to play out? How do you think uh, teams approach to calling up prospects into a race is going to play out?
1: You know, I think um, most trades of any like high impact player would be more uh, driven by economic concerns, guys, with maybe expiring contracts or even like, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with teams uh, long-term budgeting processes after this season. And there may be some owners that are are going to instruct their general managers to uh, any opportunity they can to trim future payroll commitment that they can take advantage of it um, from a competitive aspect. You know, there's going to be very few teams eliminated in a short season format with uh, 14 postseason teams. So um, in a, in a year where there is a, a thirst for sports and there's a lot of cities that need some healing, the kind that sports can offer, I find it hard to believe that any team that's in uh, reasonable contention for one of those playoff spots is going to unload impact regular players. So, um, you know, I think you might see if if there's a team that comes out and is winning, you know, a third of the time, and even in a short season, they don't have a shot Maybe they're moving some money, but um, I kind of think trading uh, in general is going to be conservative, and we don't even know how they're going to set up a deadline at this point, so that's going to be one of the negotiating points to watch, but that's my guess that just because so many teams are going to be in it that there there won't be a, a, a large number of high-impact deals.
3: The Padres. I think the Padres are a team to watch in a shortened season.
0: I They've got the pitching. I think Mackenzie Gore is up from day one. Um, that's a team, right, Tristan? We've been talking yeah. about this. Lots of know. good
2: young pitching. And if they could, especially if they could make a trade for somebody in a shortened year. Hmm.
0: Yeah. And then I was looking at the simulation on Baseball Reference, uh, not to go to a competitive sim, but, um, and Kirby Yates was pitching for like the Nationals. So, you know, people are making trades in some of these simulations and, you know, it's going to change the, the look. I'm just saying a team... If I'm the Dodgers or the Astros or the Yankees, it's a strong team. A half season is not bode well for me. A half season bodes well for the uh, teams like the Padres and the White Sox. And if they get into the playoffs and Lucas Giolito throws a two hit shutout in the first game, like that's really dangerous for the Yankees. I want to see that. I think you want to see that too, Brad. It's going to be so much fun having all, all these teams in a playoff, even if it's in November in you know Phoenix, it would still be fun.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree. It's the, It's the teams that are that that in a normal campaign, you'd look at it. Maybe they have a a five to 10 percent shot of the playoffs. So those are the teams that are going to be the most fun in a short format.
0: But maybe not your Royals and my Phillies. That's the other thing. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about our teams. But um, anyway, uh, let's get to Tristan's trivia. What was the uh, trivia question again? And let's see if we can get it wrong.
2: Okay, so taking only the, the – these are team's first 82 games played in a season. We're taking that magic number of 82. I'd like you to name first the only player to have two years of at least 20 homers and 20 steals in his team's first 82 games, and then there are three other players who did it once apiece. Five total years, four different players. Can you name the player who did it twice?
0: All right, Brad, you're first. You're the guest. What do you got?
1: Uh, I'm going to guess Bobby Bonds. Yeah, <laughs> it was my he first was officer.
2: My officer, Yeah, Bobby Bonds did do it once. He is one of the players that did it once. He had 22 homers, 24 steals in the first 82 of 1973, finished with 39 and 43. He's not the one with two.
0: Uh, my other guess was going to be Alfonso
2: Soriano. Yeah. Ah, okay. That is a darn good guess, and he got really close but did not even get to 2020 in that 2006 year, I believe it was, with the Nationals. Oh, Didn't
3: Kind of I had Roger Abreu because he seems to be the answer to all of these questions and that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, Abreu is not one of the answers.
0: Yeah. Well, <laughs> nobody wants to guess Trout. That's obvious, right?
2: Oh, Brad Stern. Oh, yeah,
1: okay. Um uh, how about Alex Rodriguez?
2: Alex Rodriguez is one who did it once. He did it in 98, 27 homers, 22 steals on the route to a 42 and 46 finish. We have two more players. One of them did it twice, and I'll give you the hint here now. What, uh, each of these players did it in the same decade. One of the years came in the same decade. Well, that's a
3: big help. I'm going to say Barry Bonds.
2: Barry Bonds did not ever do it.
3: Of course not. He did something, but he didn't do that. All right. Nope, not that. <laughs> <laughs> Kyle's up. Kyle, you're next. Uh, Beltran? No, I, I'm talking. thinking I'm probably too recent. My like, I can't imagine my guys are going to be the right time. You
2: are yeah. too recent. Yes,
3: yeah. it's basically somebody who got off to a good start. I mean, that's
2: uh, not actually not not at this point. You, I believe you got the toughest one, which I think was Bobby Bonds.
3: <laughs> that would have been all of our
0: first. You got another
2: guess?
3: That was
0: everybody's first guess. It wasn't it? Wasn't anybody recent?
1: Well, I'm going to throw out. Um, and my thinking here is because. Forty forty didn't used to be a thing, so if somebody was on that track, they might not even go for it because they weren't. A, they didn't realize that it would be an accomplishment. So I'll say Mickey Mantle,
2: not Mickey Mantle. Willie Mays, not Willie Mays. Uh-huh. You're now going. You're now going in the wrong direction. Yeah, we're we're gonna stop. This is
0: great radio. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right. So so the eighties were the decade that I was thinking of here. The player who did it twice did it in the 80s and in the 90s, and it was Jose Canseco. He not only did it in 1988, he also did it in 1998. He had 23 homers and 21 steals in the first 82 of 1998 en route to 46 and 29. So he stopped running that year. And the other one, Eric, it's yours and my favorite fantasy season. Eric Davis. Eric Davis in 1987. 24 homers. 33 steals, he finished with 37 and 50. And by the way, he missed 17 games due to injury in September. And if we prorate those to a full year, he's 41 and 55.
0: Eric Davis is like the answer to everything. What an amazing run. (laughs) Schofield had this in his one of his recent pieces where over like 162 games, you know, like ride over two seasons, he, he went nuts. It was like 40 something homers and 90 steals or something crazy like that. Um, anyway, lots of great work coming out of ESPN's MLB baseball department. Um, we thank you so much, Brad Doolittle, for joining us. And check out all the work Jeff Passon, Colin McDaniel, Dave Schoenfield, and everybody else. And Brad will have you back on another show, hopefully, when baseball
3: resumes for the 2020 season. Thank you.
1: Thanks, guys. I enjoyed it.
3: All right, good stuff there from Brad. No way I was getting that trivia question, so I'm glad I wasn't the only one to fall flat on my face there. Thank you, Tristan, for the the confidence booster. We do have three hash browns coming in through Twitter here. Bill wants to know what do you view Machado's six hundred at bat ceiling for twenty twenty one and moving forward, what are you doing with him in Dynasty? You know, I will Tristan.
0: I really wasn't all that surprised that Machado had a disappointing season. He seemed to me as someone who, once he got the contract, I know this is terrible to say, but once he got the contract, he would kind of just like settle into a groove. I mean, he still had thirty home runs, but he stopped hitting for average. And that's two out of three years now he, he didn't hit for average. And, um, you know, he's not stealing bases. So this is not a necessarily a top 50 fantasy option here. And I'm not sure things are going to change with his home ballpark as the backdrop. So I'm a little bit fading Manny Machado's future in Dynasty and for 2020 and 2021.
2: And yeah, I could see that. And I, I think that last year, while the final numbers look good in kind of a historical context, they look poorer when you consider the baseball itself, and um, the, the power explosion across MLB. So yeah, it was a down year. It also wasn't a terrible year for a first season in San Diego. I think the second year, now that he's kind of fully uh, adapted to the situation there, is going to be better. Um I I feel like he's a locked in 30 to 40 homer guy. I think the ceiling, since the question asked for a ceiling, I don't think he's going beyond 40 home runs. I don't know that he ever hits 40 home runs in any year, but I think he'll be very solidly locked into 30 to 40. I think he's going to bat in the 270, 275 range, generally speaking, near 100 RBI. In other words, not an MVP candidate, but a member of the very good class. And that's why I ranked him that way.
0: Two of the last three seasons, Tristan, he has failed to bat 260 and failed to reach double digits and steals and failed to eclipse 81 runs. I mean, is, how much of this is ballpark? How much of this is just we overrated him?
2: I think there's a little bit of ballpark. I think there is a little bit of a, that we overrated him. I think that a little of it, and I think it's more than either of those two, is that he was kind of unfortunate on balls and play. I'm trying to quickly dig up his stat expected batting average for you just to give you a an outlook here uh it was only
0: 274 so a low bat for a player that that has speed
2: he had an expected batting average those those three years of 287 289 266 so last year was a problem but i think he's due for a little bit more good fortune it's why i'm not going beyond 275 you're right he might be a 265 to 275 range hitter all
3: right is now the right time to move him in Dynasty, or are you still holding out for another year or two? How can you? How, who who would buy low on Manny Machado right now? Name value. I don't
0: know.
2: I, I think mean, he, he he has a rebound year, and that's the one when you cash him in.
0: Yeah, I think that's a bad time right now to try. I mean, look, five years of great durability and thirty home runs every year. We talk about what he isn't. Give him credit for what he is. If he's still – if he's just a guy who bats 260 every year with 32 homers and 85 RBI at third base and maybe shortstop because Tatis can't stay healthy, that's a
3: that's still a third-round player. I'm on board with that. Ed was reading Eric's Brewer's piece, and Eric noticed the cold call with Hira being the top second baseman in 2021. He wants to know, Tristan, if you had to give a surprise player to lead his positional ranks in 2021, who would it be and why?
2: A surprise player to lead. Um, what do you think I mean, of Hura?
3: Is that is that just crazy? Is that just
0: a a, a a stupid bold statement?
2: Nope. Because for for one thing, I don't feel like there's a very clear runaway leader at second base. I think there are a good number of players in that Hura range who have the ability to put up a great year and be the number one player at that position. It's a good position from which to choose. And I did look at this before to try and come up with a, a positional leader and kind of flubbed it. I should have. Uh, should have come back to it. I, I don't want to go to relief pitcher. I really don't want to go to relief pitcher. That's that's the one big concern for me. But who is my big guy?
0: Well, Nick um, Anderson. Like Nick Anderson could do what Kirby Yates did last year.
2: Yeah, I, I. But I had a guy who struck me the other day, and I completely Aaron fell.
0: Bummer. I mean, relief relief pitchers kind of like. I don't want to say unfair answer, but like. That's where the most volatility is. Like, if you wanted to say that the number one catcher is going to be like Sean Murphy, that'd be bold, like Hura.
2: I I remember who it was. And and it's me mentioning that I really like this player. And I I think that we're giving him way too much negativity for this poor second half. It would take some doing at the top, but I think Josh Bell has a shot at first base.
0: Yeah, I'm going in the other direction on Josh Bell. When I did more research on my Pirates piece, which is coming up Wednesday, that ends my. My 30 teams in you know 90 day article. Um, I, I was almost more likely to fade Bell when I researched on him. Why? Uh, well, you have to read the piece. Uh, I, I think it's uh,
2: <laughs> that's a I'll, tease
0: in the business. I, I, I don't want to. I okay. The comp I'm going to make here is going to make you think I'm I shouldn't be doing the show anymore. But he had a Dominic Brown month, Tristan, and then a lot of pretty average play and after what don brown did out of nowhere nothing before that nothing after that it concerns me josh bell went from a terrible first base season the year before to he had like didn't he he had a monster month i don't remember which month it was but he had a monster month and the rest of it was like uh, okay so that concerns me like don brown okay now of course that's not going to happen the same way but the fact is that Josh Bell – now, look, he's different. He's a switch hitter. He was always supposed to have power but didn't always show it. Um, another thing that bothered me, he was uh, – didn't he like, – he was much better against right-handers, again, yes. better against lefties. But he batted there at his 390 with 12 of his home runs in May. So a third of his home run, Apple, came in one month. And in no – in the other months after the 390-month, 208, 218, 261, 250. What if that's the real Josh Bell? He's a 30-home run hitter who bats 260. Well, that's just not good enough to be a third or fourth-round pick to me.
2: In his defense, since you're choosing arbitrary endpoints, I will choose an arbitrary endpoint, and I will choose the one month's time that spanned August 11th to September 10th and give you 276, 10 homers, 27 RBI, a 982 OPS in 28 games. So that's he freaking it scares
0: me. But do you want your players to be that streaky just tonight? Now, look, in a, in a full roto point season, I don't care. But in a head-to-head look a format, you know, I don't want a guy to just do well. It's like drafting a course Field player. I don't want somebody to just do well one or two weeks out of six. I want somebody who's consistent. He was not consistent.
2: I think we are adhering this discussion well to the shortened year topic for today. And that's why I'm throwing his name out there. And I like I I see exactly what you're saying here over the course of a year. It does concern me a lot. I also wonder, people said he struggled because of the home run derby curse. Is there any validity to just a brief blip in the negative direction? No, I I don't buy it. I don't buy it. But that's what people say about him, about the fact that he struggled right after the All-Star break. He went into a month-long complete power outage.
0: Lots of players do, whether they're in the home run derby or not. But, okay, well, we don't have to agree on Josh Bell. I mean, I, he's more a feat I'm not going to get him on my team this year. I have a feeling.
2: You know what's crazy? In the month before the one I just said, do you know how many home runs he hit in the exact one month that preceded that?
0: Like six, probably.
2: He hit zero. Yeah. In 24 okay. games, he hit zero and he batted 188. So, yeah, you're right. He's very streaky.
0: Well, he's very much not going to be on my teams. I hope he does well, but I'm I'm concerned.
3: Kyle, what else? That's fair. I I think I'm pro-Bell if I had to pick a side, but who cares? Nobody cares what I'm thinking here. We got the last question. John wants to know, if we miss 2020, what will your approach be to players in their early to mid-30s, the older players? Is it another year closer to retirement and therefore a downgrade? Or with a full year off, they're finally healthy and maybe an upgrade? You know, there's going to be a time where
0: we may have to deal with this, and it might be pretty soon. I hope there's a season, as you all do, but if there isn't, it's not going to change my approach all that much, to be honest. So it's already June. So I assume everybody is healthy. (laughs) I assume that Nelson Cruz will still be a really good fantasy option in 2021, whether he plays in 2020 or not. And by the way, even if they do play this season, there are going to be some players that just choose not to play. And I am not going to downgrade them. Now for 2021, Tristan, you do projections. Brad does them, and, and you know Zimborski. A lot of people do them. What, do you think that you would downgrade a player if he do, if he chooses not to play this season, like Sean Doolittle, who you got to follow on Twitter? If he, if he does not pitch in 2020 for obvious reasons, I don't think I would downgrade him in 2021 for that, just for missing a year. He's he's healthy.
2: Yeah, I don't think I would downgrade. The vast majority of players, I wouldn't for that specific reason, there are individual cases where I might enter the 21, uh, 21 spring training with a, an increasing level of skepticism. And all that's going to mean for me is writing their names down on a list to monitor from the scouting eye uh, standpoint of whether there's they've, they've slipped. Nelson Cruz immediately comes to mind. At Nelson's, Nelson Cruz's age, I want to see that there's not some sort of age-influenced Downswing for Edwin and Carnacion. We've mentioned before. That's another guy who I think I would have on my list. But I would just watch them during spring training because, frankly, from the projections standpoint, there is no historical comp for this. Period. So, what right do we have to bake that into projections? We are we are manipulating that manually if we do that,
0: right? And and I, what I don't want people to assume is that Nelson Cruz is more likely to fall apart at the plate than say Glaber Torres just because he's a lot older. You know, who, who is more likely of the two of them to not keep himself in shape or to have suffered an in- injury playing at home or to be less motivated? I don't want to assume that it's Cruz. It may not be. So, yeah. there you he, go.
2: I'm only putting him on a list to monitor. Right. I'm not sure that anything changes. And it could take two days of spring training games for me to say, that's Nelson Cruz. All good.
0: All right, that's all for our show today. Let, final thoughts here. Tristan is a year older since our last podcast. He turned twenty nine years old on Friday, and we hope you had a nice birthday and a nice birthday weekend. Um, today is also Johan Santana's birthday. I just watched him throw a no hater against the Cardinals. It wasn't live, but I think it happened. And poor Mike Baxter, he just ran into the wall. Hope he's okay. Is uh, it, what,
2: what, was it his birthday, or was it? It's just the anniversary of his. No, no, I don't. Is it his actual birthday?
0: Oh, maybe, maybe it's just the anniversary of the no-hitter. It's something.
2: Yeah, know. I've seen the anniversary of the, the- – uh, That's the why they're NFL showing no-hitter. it. Okay.
0: <laughs> I, you know what? I, I'll tell you what. When baseball resumes, w- whether it's next month or next year, I hope they still show old baseball games during the day, whether it's the morning or the afternoon. Now, Obviously, they have their studio shows and all. But, like, I like watching old baseball. I really do. So I, I hope that doesn't go away. And speaking of old baseball – My goodness, what a piece this was! Friday night, the Roy Halladay E60 show ran on um, ESPN. It's rerunning this Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern on ESPN News. Uh, Friday was also the anniversary, the 10-year anniversary of Roy Halladay's perfect game. And if you watch the one-hour E60, um, you see that he is anything but perfect. But you know what? None of us are perfect. I really enjoyed watching Roy Halladay play baseball, and um, it doesn't tarnish my memories of him that he had some off the field issues because you know what we all do uh that's all for today's show I want to thank everybody who listened I want to thank Brad Doolittle who joined us today to talk about projections and we will have him on at a later day Kyle Sapi does a great job researching and producing our show and Tristan H. Cockcroft. thank you so much for your friendship and for a great show we've been doing this for a long time and hopefully we, that continues for a long time as well with or without baseball but we do hope that there is baseball. Our next show is on the schedule for Thursday. We'll be talking about a movie that day and the movie escapes. We, which one was supposed to be? Was it? Just did bull- oh, Field, Field of Dreams. Oh, Field of Dreams. Right. This yeah. is right.
3: So, one I our schedule. The I know the tagline to that movie. What's the tagline? If you build it, they will come. That's going to be my squad captain. Oh,
2: the whiff. It's now, very nice. It's, if you build it, he will come.
3: He will come close <laughs> It's than I would have been on the other ones. All right, well, uh, I can
0: tell you I'll be batting left-handed for that show. That is all for today's show for Monday, June 1st. Please be safe out there, and we will talk again on Thursday.